And Lord, I, I pray that this morning would be powerful for all of us. Your word is so rich, so deep, so brimming and overflowing with your love for us. Would you let us see new dimensions of your love, maybe that we've never seen before. Let us see them this morning in deeper, clearer, brighter ways so that we'll be strengthened, so that we'll be more bold and risky in loving our neighbors and the poor and lost people and the unreached people groups. And so you'll be more glorified through our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to start off having you think about a question. And the question is, if you're going to make a list of spiritual blessings that God has given to you, what would you put on your list? You don't need to answer it right now, but just think. Okay? I want to list off spiritual blessings that God has given to me. Which ones would you start off with? And what would you put on your list? What spiritual blessings would just like, just like come right into your mind right at the very, very beginning? I want you to take a look at what Paul started off with. This is in your notes right there, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. And I want you to see what spiritual blessings are on Paul's list. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he starts his list, verse 4. Even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. So when Paul lists spiritual blessings, he starts off with spiritual blessing of God's choosing us, which theologians call election, and the spiritual blessing of predestination. Now, I just got to ask, did any of you in your list start off with, or even have on your list, election or predestination? Got a big, no one did, see? So, Paul's on to something that we need to catch on to here. When Paul starts off his list of spiritual blessings, it's God's choosing of us and God's predestining of us. And we do tend to shy away from election, predestination, regeneration, those, those words which describe what God does to save us. We tend to focus more on what we do to get saved, repent and believe. Very important to focus on those. But we tend to ignore or shy away from powerful truths about what God has done in saving us. And there's some reasons we shy away from those. One reason is a lot of questions. It's not easy to understand. It's hard to wrap our minds around election and predestination. And another reason that we shy away from those is that godly people have different opinions on what those words mean. And they're not easy topics. I mean, there's mystery involved with regeneration, election, predestination. There's questions that come up about those topics that I certainly can't answer. But the Holy Spirit led Paul to write about God's choosing us, election, and to write about predestination in this passage and in many other passages. The Holy Spirit chose to have those topics in the Bible, which means that the Holy Spirit wants us to study them. He wants us to understand them because he has benefit for us in them. And so that's what I want us to do this morning. Okay. Now, my main goal is to stir you so that you will study these topics for yourself. It's much more important that you understand what the scriptures teach than that you agree with me. Okay, so would you please study the scriptures here? That's really the priority. Jesus is not going to ask you when you stand before him, did you agree with Steve Fuller? 
Jesus will ask you, did you study my word? Okay, so I want you to listen to me as a means to digging into the scriptures. That's what I'm really urging you to do. That's my passion. You studying the scriptures is more important than you agreeing with me. And I I also want to say that no one needs to agree with me, with the elders, on these topics in order to be a member here. This is an area I know some of us already are agreeing to disagree on on this issue. And I love you and you love me and it's a good thing. Okay, we're going to keep that keep doing that. But. My job is to teach what I think the Bible teaches clearly. And I think the Bible's clear on these topics. And so I want to teach them this morning. And what I'm praying God will do is, is transform our lives through them. Like what George Mueller experienced. Look at this quote here. How many of you have heard of George Mueller? Okay. Uh, George Mueller, very well-known man in England, 1800s, founded many orphanages, hundreds Hundreds of children were housed, loved, heard about Jesus, came to know the Lord, were taught, trained, and, uh, and taken care of through his ministry. Many powerful stories of how God miraculously, at the last nanosecond, provided food, money. I mean, this is a miraculous thing. George Mueller is an amazing guy. I was stunned at this quote that I read from his life. This is what happened to him when he was 24 years old. He says, before this period, I had been much opposed to the doctrines of election and final persevering grace. But now I was brought to examine these precious truths by the word of God. I went to the word, reading the New Testament from the beginning with a particular reference to these truths. To my great astonishment, I found that the passages which speak decidedly for election and persevering grace were about four times as many as those which speak apparently against these truths. And even those few that apparently spoke against those truths, shortly after, when I had examined and understood them, served to confirm me in the above doctrines. As to the effect which these doctrines had on me, I love this paragraph, I am constrained to state for God's glory that though I am still exceedingly weak, and by no means so dead to the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, and the pride of life as I might be and as I ought to be, yet, by the grace of God, it says three things now, I have walked more closely with him since that period. My life has not been so variable, so up and down, unstable, insecure. My life has not been so variable. And I may say that I have lived much more for God than before. Three things that I'm praying God will do in our lives through what we're going to hear this morning. One is that you will walk more closely with God than you have before. Oh, Mercy Hill Church. My greatest joy, I think about what Paul says, he says not to the Thessalonians, he says, I really live when you are standing firm in the Lord. That's Living for me is to hear stories of how you you love Jesus, you're following him, you're meeting him, you're obeying him, you're being faithful to him, you're glorifying him. And so if God could use this morning to help you walk more closely with Jesus, if he could use this morning so that your life wouldn't be so variable so that you would be a rock, because you're on the rock, so that when trials come you are strong, stable smiling at the future, no matter what it holds, not, not so variable, and so that you can live more for God. That's my objective here. All right, top of the next page. So, here's the problem we all face. The Bible teaches that because of our sinfulness, because of our wickedness, before we were saved, we didn't want to believe in Jesus. That was the problem. Okay? Me, you, before we were saved, because of our sin, we didn't want to believe in Jesus. We wanted money more than Jesus, sex more than Jesus, entertainment more than Jesus, a new computer more than Jesus, television more than Jesus, anything, frankly, please, thank you, more than Jesus. Right? That's where we were. We didn't want to believe in Jesus. Perfect illustration in this passage. Jesus has just been talking to a very wealthy man. And he says, uh, 
The wealthy man wants to have eternal life. And Jesus says, well, sell everything and come follow me and you'll have eternal life. And the man's face fell because he loved his money more than Jesus. And so he walked away from Jesus to his money. Pick it up in verse 23. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now why? It's because to be saved we need to love Jesus more than money. That's why. Very difficult. And the disciples were amazed at his words. Jesus, how can you say that? But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. How difficult is it to have a camel go through the eye of a needle? I gave you a picture of a camel trying, so you could take a look there. It's not going well. Okay? The right answer is impossible. It's impossible. And you'll see Jesus uses the word impossible because that's exactly the point he's making. It's impossible. And then they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Who can be saved then? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. With man it is impossible. Why? Because you can't want what you don't want. If you don't want Jesus, are you going to want Jesus? No, because you don't want him. None of us wanted him. None of us wanted to trust him. We wanted everything else besides him. And that's why with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. So here's the problem. If God left us to what we would choose, no one would be saved because none of us would choose Jesus. We didn't want Jesus. How many people who don't want Jesus are going to choose Jesus? None, because they don't want Jesus. That's our problem. The good news, this amazing display of God's love for us, is that God didn't leave us to what we would choose. And here's a passage that shows God's merciful, loving action. It's a passage I think you're probably, most all of you are familiar with. Romans 8, 28 to 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For, here's the reason why, those whom he, and I underline these words that we're going to go through one by one this morning, those whom he foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now each of these are precious words describing what God does when he saved you. If you're trusting Jesus Christ right now, if your heart's been changed and you're trusting Jesus, then he has foreknown you, predestined you, called you, justified you, and he will glorify you. So I want to go through these word by word and unpack them. First, the word foreknew. A lot of people who I love think that when God foreknew us, What it meant was that God looked ahead to see who would believe in Jesus, and then he knew that they would believe in Jesus, and on that basis he predestined them. A lot of people I love think that's what this means. I don't think that's what this means. Here's why. First paragraph. This can't mean that God foreknew those who would have faith, because left to ourselves, none of us would choose to have faith. Okay? If we're going to have faith, God has to give it to us. Look at Ephesians 2, 8, 9. I hope you see just how clear this is. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. And this, what does this refer to? Faith, being saved through faith, the grace, all three of those. The faith, the salvation came as a result, the grace. This is not your own doing. 
It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, this is an astonishing. If you haven't seen this before, see, you've seen God's love, maybe this facet of God's love, and I'm hoping that this morning you'll also see this facet of God's love, so that your, your picture of God's love enlarges like that. Because, see, if God looked ahead upon sinful humanity to see who would believe in Jesus on their own, he'd still be waiting. In love, he, not of your own doing, it's the gift of God, he gave you faith. Faith was not of your own doing. I was so sinful, I would never have trusted Jesus unless God, in amazing love and mercy, gave Steve Fuller faith. Look at Steve Fuller. He's never going to believe in Jesus. We're going to, I'm going to get this in a second. We're going to set our love upon him, put our affection upon him, as sinful as he is because of Jesus. We're going to crush Jesus in his place, and because of Jesus, I'm going to give him faith. Boom! Faith hits me. 17 years old. I trust Jesus. Look at who he is. How could I have been so blind for so many years? It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Your faith that you have in your heart right now, you can't take any of the credit for it. And I want to fight for this because I want my Jesus to get all the credit for your faith and for mine. He bought your faith. A terrible price. It was given to you as a gift, and all the glory for your faith goes to God the Father and Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit. So be thankful that when God looked ahead and he knew that nobody would believe unless God gave faith to people, God didn't rely on us doing what we could do on our own doing, but he brought the gift of God of faith upon us. And there's other passages there you can look at. So if that's not what the word foreknow means, what does it mean? The word know in the Bible often means love. Like in Amos chapter 3, I think it's chapter 3, God says to Israel, you alone have I known among all the nations of the earth. The word known there doesn't mean that God knew Israel and, oh, there's Babylon there. It's not that he didn't know about other nations. The word know there has to do with love. You alone have I set my electing love upon God specially chose Israel for the sake of the nations, yes, but he specially put his affection, put his love on Israel. And that's what the word foreknow means. Here's a quote from Tom Schreiner, who wrote this commentary on Romans. It refers to God's covenantal love in which he sets his affection on those whom he has chosen. Next paragraph. Foreknow is a synonym then for choosing, another way of describing election. What this means is that God chose to save a vast multitude. I get this from Revelation 7, 9 through 10. A vast multitude that no one can count from every nation, tongue, and tribe. That's what God has chosen to do. So, don't get the wrong picture. It's not that everybody wants to get saved and God says, "Uh uh-uh, I'm just going to save you and maybe you and maybe you. That's not the right picture. The right picture is God says to the whole world, Come to me and be saved, all the, all the earth. And everybody hears that and runs away. And God says, God knew this was going to happen. Okay? He says, all right then, I'm going to grab you, I'm going to grab you, grab, 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 grab. A vast multitude that no one can count from every nation, tongue, and tribe, he foreknew. He put his affection on. If there's no election, if there's no foreknowing, there's no salvation. You feel that? Now, here's why I want you to get this. Top of the next page. This, I hope, will help you see what I've seen more clearly this week than ever before. How passionate and personal God's love for you is. It's not that God just gave potential salvation to the whole world and then sat back to see who would come to him. Okay? He could have done it that way. He didn't do it that way. Well, we wouldn't have come. It's the problem. What God has done instead, as he's looked at all of humanity, all of us sinning, none of us wanting Jesus, all of us running away from him. And he looked at Steve Fuller, or he looked at you. If you're trusting Jesus, this is exactly what happened. He looked at you, he looked at me, and I was no different or better than anybody else. You had no distinctive which drew God to you. You were a sinner like just anybody else was, exactly the same. And God said, I'm going to set my affection upon Steve Fuller. 
He's a sinner. He's running from me. He doesn't want me. He's wicked. He deserves only eternal judgment from me. But I'm going to crush my son in his place and so I can set my affection and my love upon Steve Fuller. And so I'm going to choose Steve Fuller, give him faith, and save him. Think about it like this, women. Let's say that you got a, a form letter from a man who sent out 10,000 form letters proposing marriage to 10,000 women. Okay? A little strange, but just bear with me here. Okay, sends out this form letter. Think, the point is, how much love do you feel here? Feel any love coming yet? Okay, form letter to 10,000 women, and then he just says, well, whichever one responds, I'll, I'll propose to, I'll, I'll love them, and we'll be married. Okay, you feeling the love? All right. As opposed to a man who sees you. Now, this, every analogy breaks down a little bit, because in this case, he sees some distinctive in you. That's not the same with God, because we're all just equally wicked. But, but this man sees you, and he says, I love her. And I'm going to woo her, and I'm going to romance her, and I'm going to pursue her until she says yes to me. Now, which one do you feel the love from the most? you feel the difference? And that's what I want you to see. Some, all of us need to understand that God's love was not just for humanity, but that if you're trusting Jesus Christ, you know that in eternity past, he foreknew you. He set his affection on you as an individual. God the Father, Jesus the Son, God the Holy Spirit set their affection on you. Chose to love you when you had nothing to warrant this. Do you feel that? You were a sinner wanting to run from God. And God took your sin Put it upon his son. Jesus willingly took your sin upon himself. God crushed his son in your place. Poured his wrath out upon Jesus instead of upon you. So he could set his affection and his love upon you. As an individual. And love you. And save you. So that's what foreknown means here. God personally chose you. And again, the only reason God could do this was because of Jesus. Because he was choosing at the same time to punish your sins in Jesus and that's what it means to be one of God's elect. It's a word that takes place often in the Bible. We tend to skip over it. It's rich with love and affection that God has had for you from before the foundations of the world. So that's foreknown. That's what that means. Now, predestined simply stresses the preordained plan of God that will certainly come to pass. So if you're trusting Jesus, if you have faith in your heart towards Jesus Christ, that was a gift given to you by God because he foreknew you. He set his affection upon you in eternity past. God's predestined you to be conformed to the image of Jesus and enjoy his glory forever. Now look, skip down about an inch. Look at Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. In love, in love, he predestined us for adoption. This is one of the reasons I want to raise up predestination as something that you, you might be glad I'm raising up because there's facets of God's love for you that you will not get unless you understand predestination. Isn't that clear right here? Because why did God predestine you? In love. So if you understand what predestination means, you see a new facet of God's love for me. And that's what I hope you will start to feel through this. What this means is before you had faith, while you were still a sinner, while you, while I, we were no different from anyone else, God set his love on you and predestined you for salvation. Look at Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, another synonym for predestined, to eternal life, believed. How many believed? As many as were appointed to eternal life. What did all those who had been appointed to eternal life do? They believed. So I, I want you to just get this picture. We, we tend to think that God just potentially saves us and then sits back to see what we will do. I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. I think God set his affection on you. If you're trusting Jesus right now, then God set his affection on you in eternity past. And he said, Jesus, will you take 
yours, 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 yours. Will you, will you take his, her, their? Will you take his sin upon yourself and, and allow me to crush you with my wrath for their sin? Jesus says, yes, I will. All right then, Jesus, let's set our affection on him, upon her. And Jesus, the Father, set their affection on you as an individual. And why? Why would God the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit set their affection on me? Why? Why would he do that? There's no reason in me. Do you see that? I mean, there's, there's no reason in me. The whole reason why God the Father would do that and Jesus the Son would do that was because of his mercy. The reason's found in him. It's not found in me. I have nothing to boast in in my salvation. Even my faith was a gift from God. I was a sinner running away from God as fast as I could, and he just said, I'm going to love him. And he grabbed me, changed my will, turned me around, brought me back, kicking and screaming, said he changed my will. And so here I am, saved, and all the glory has to go to God. All the glory has to go to God. Because left to myself, I would still be running. That's what's going on here in this passage. Called. What does called mean? Foreknown, predestined, called. The word called has two different meanings in scripture. Often it means a a general call that goes out to everybody where God invites everyone to salvation. You see that word called in Matthew 22, 14. For many are called, but few are chosen. So many are called. Everybody gets called. But that can't be what Paul means in Romans chapter 8, verse 30. Go, go back to Romans 8, verse 30, one page before there. I just want you to see that that can't be what this word called means here. Verse 30, those whom he predestined, he also called. So who is called in this verse? Those who are also predestined, right? Okay, do you see that? How many people get called? Who gets called? Those who were predestined with this call. And notice that all who are called, what else happens to them? They are justified. So all the people that get called are justified, saved. So this call is different. The other call where God calls everybody to get saved, not all those people end up getting saved. This use of the word call here, everyone who gets this call ends up justified and saved. So this call is different. The same word used two different ways in the scriptures. Top of page four. So God and Paul, in fact, whenever Paul uses this word, I didn't realize this until this week, but every time Paul uses this word called, where God is the subject, he means it as God's effective summons by which people are brought into relationship with himself. Not just invited, but brought. It's an effective summons. When God calls people in this sense of the word, he causes them to obey the call. It's like Jesus called to Lazarus. Remember Lazarus? Lazarus is in the tomb, four days, dead. And Jesus says, come forth. And that call was a, a summons. It affected his resurrection from the dead. It brought him forth. And so when Jesus called you, he changed your heart. He gave you faith, subdued your rebellious will, and he brought you to himself. So when Paul talks about people being called, the, the called, he's just talking about believers. Look at 1 Corinthians 1, 23 to 24. You can see that. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to one group, Jews and, and folly to the Greeks. So to, to, to some of the Jews, to some of the Greeks, it's a stumbling block. But now he mentions another group. But to those who are called, different group. See that? But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So to some, Christ is foolishness and weakness. To the called, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This calling is where God, he says to you, come forth out of, the, out of spiritual deadness. And his call isn't just words, it's authority. It's a powerful summons. Theologians call it effectual calling because it effects the very aim of the call. It brings it about. It accomplishes it. And i got this whole list of scriptures here. And what I want you to see through this is that when God saves you, he changes you. 
He changes you. He gives you faith. He subdues your proud will. And my, my, my goal through doing this is, especially, well, there's a number of them, but one is so that you'll be humbled more deeply before Jesus Christ and what he's done. Because you'll realize he did everything. Everything. Even my faith had to come from him as a gift. He did everything. Here's some scriptures. John 6, and 65. No one can come to me because we don't want to. That's why. No one can come to me. We don't want to unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Why did you come to Jesus? It's because the Father in great love, great personal individual love, reached down and grabbed you and drew you to Jesus. I want him. I want her. Great love, personal individual love, drew you personally, individually to Jesus. Oh, I want you to see that. There's a dimension of love here that will transform us. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is why I told you that no one can come to me, because we don't want to, unless it's granted him by the Father. A special gift of you coming to Jesus was given to you individually, with your name on the, not just like whoever, but you, your name on the package. God gave this to you. That's why you're trusting Jesus right now. Because God individually, personally, passionately set his affection on you, individually. Loved you, for Jesus' sake. Loved you because he was going to crush his own son for your sin so he could love you. And that's why you're saved. We already looked at Mark 10, 26 earlier. Look at Ezekiel 36. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. We're talking about a spiritual heart transplant here. Okay? I had a heart of stone. 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, first two months. Heart of stone. I was not. I went to church every Sunday. Okay? I was the leader of the youth group. Pharisee. Okay? I was my Steve Pharisee Fuller. I kind of like that. Don't like that. Okay. My heart was hard, though. Jesus had no interest to me. I had no interest. I wasn't interested in Jesus. I had no love for Jesus. I liked friends. I liked fun. I liked popularity. I liked being noticed. I liked those things. Jesus was a means, whatever. Jesus, fame, popularity, whatever, blah, blah. God reached down one day when I was 17 years old. He said, look at that. Look at that heart. That's a, that's a stony heart. That's a hard heart. Take that heart out. Give a heart of flesh. It's changed. Look at Acts 11:18. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God. They just gotten a report of Gentiles being saved. And they said, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. If you are repenting over your sin, that didn't come initially from you. That was a gift given to you by God. It was a gracious, merciful gift that God, for the sake of Jesus Christ, chose to give to you as undeserving and as as unworthy as you were and as I was. He's given that to you. Your repentance is... God, you gave this to me. Did you realize that? I hope you realize it now. God grants repentance. Not just potential repentance, but repentance. Second Timothy 2. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Why? God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may, as a result, come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Grant. God may grant them repentance. And then one of my favorite verses, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. You were dead in your trespasses and sins 
were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. This is all about God's rich mercy and kindness and love for us. I was dead, dead, D-E-A-D, dead. And God looked down upon Steve Fuller, corpse, spiritually dead, no interest in Jesus, no trust in Jesus, no prospect of interest or trust in Jesus left to myself, and being rich in mercy towards me. And because of the great love with which he loved me, even when I was dead in my trespasses, even when you were dead in your trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Come forth like to Lazarus. Let life come. Let faith be given. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. So clear. Faith. Grace. Being saved. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And God didn't give you the gift because you were better than anybody else. It's not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus. That's his picture of conversion. We were created. New creations. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So before you turn your page over, just get the feel. I'm talking about calling, which is also like regeneration, being born again, synonymous ideas. This happens when people hear the word. The word is the means by which God's heart-changing power is Channeled, it's channeled through the word. It's channeled through the gospel. When the gospel goes forth, that's time, the time when God will change people's hearts. Take out the heart of stone. Give the heart of flesh. Give the gift of faith. Grant repentance. Bring about the change. Draw people to Jesus. That's the calling. Now, top of the next page. So how can you know you've been called? I I would guess there's probably some of you who maybe have that question now. This is really big. This is really, really big. How do you know you've been called? You can know. You can know. It's because you have a new heart, which trusts and loves Jesus. Not, Not perfectly. So you need to underline those words right there. Not perfectly. Okay, please underline that. All right. It's easy to overstate what happens at regeneration. But there is a profound change that takes place when God calls you, when he regenerates you, when you are born again. So it's not perfectly, but it's persistently. So if you trust Jesus, if you love Jesus, that's that's an astonishing thing. Where did you get that? How did you end up loving Jesus? You get that question? You didn't come up with that on your own. Where did you get that heart of flesh? You have a heart of stone by your nature. Where did you get the heart of flesh that loves Jesus and trusts Jesus? It was a gift from the spiritual heart transplant doctor. It was a gift. God gave it to me. That's how you know you're called. It's because you have a new heart which trusts and loves Jesus. Okay, what if you're not sure? I wouldn't be surprised if some of you really aren't sure if you're called or not. And I want to stress this because going forward at a meeting could be the means by which God saves you. But you can go forward at meetings and not end up walking out with a new heart. The going forward is not the thing. It's trusting Jesus, which is the thing. So you can go forward and you can pray prayers, but unless you're trusting Jesus, there's been no new heart given. And so, if you're not sure, here's what I would encourage you to do. Right now, turn to Jesus and trust him. Trust him. Look at the cross. Look at his love for you. Look at the fact that he was willing to become sin, your sin, and be punished by the Father for your sin, so you could be completely forgiven. 
Look at the love of Jesus Christ. Look at his trustworthiness and his goodness and trust him right now. Repent of your sin. Look at his mercy and goodness as expressed on the cross. Trust him. And when you do this, you'll have experienced his saving power changing your heart. And you'll know that in free, sovereign, all-powerful grace and mercy, he has called you, chosen to love you, save you from eternity past. So you got foreknown. He sets his affection on you in spite of your sin because he would punish your sin in Jesus. He, he chose to love you individually, predestined you because of his love through Jesus Christ to salvation. And then in time, he called you, brought about a heart change in you. And the result of that, you trust Jesus as you're justified. So we unpacked that last week. I'll let you read that on your own. And then you're going to be glorified. Those who are predestined, he also called. Those who he calls, he also justifies. Those who he justifies, he also glorifies. What this means is that every single person whom God foreknew, predestined, called, justified, will end up glorified also. No one gets lost on the way. Every single one will end up being glorified. Here's some scriptures. Okay, Jeremiah 32.40. God makes an amazing statement. History of Israel, Israel was constantly running away from God, and God was constantly having to punish them, right? Now look at this breathtaking statement that God says about Israel. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. How can God not turn away from doing good to Israel? They're always running away from him, and he's always got to bring the Babylonians against them, you know, have them be... You know, trolled by the Philistines, you know, bring sicknesses upon them. God's constantly got to be doing hard, bad things to them to bring them back. But here God says, I will not turn away from doing good to them. How can God promise that? They're so fickle. Here's how. I will put the fear of me, not servile, cringing fear, but the awestruck, woe fear. I'll put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not, they may not turn away from me. And I'll rejoice in doing them good. I got a picture of a kangaroo over there. Some of you have heard this before. My dad likes to say that Christianity is a kangaroo religion, not a possum religion. I love this because, see, possum babies, couldn't find a picture of a possum its babies, but possum babies hang on to mom. Okay? And if they let go, what happens? Ah! Okay, it's not pretty. All right, so possum babies hang on. If possum babies are going to make it, because they hung on the whole way. Kangaroo babies, they, 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 uh, they lucked out here. They're in the pouch, okay? They don't need to hang on. They can just, like, kick back, you know, right? Okay? Don't want to overstate this. Every analogy breaks down, all right? But, but bear with me. The, the, the point is that the good work, and I'm moving ahead to another scripture here, the good work that God starts in you, God will continue. He will keep you trusting Jesus. I didn't come up with my trust in Jesus, and I'm not going to be the one who's going to continue to trust Jesus, ultimately, depending on myself. God gave it to me. God is going to sustain me in it. And if he didn't sustain me in it, I'd be undone. That's who Steve Fuller is. That's why me, or any, any, any of us, when any of us stand before Jesus Christ in that final day, let's switch it around. You know, we can tend to think about like Billy Graham's and, you know, George Whitfield's and John Wesley's and you know Sarah Edwards, these, these famous godly people, we can just think, wow, they're amazing. And they are, they are amazing. But when we see them standing before Jesus, the wow is going to go to Jesus. You did that in them? <laughs> You're amazing. How did Fuller get here? Now, Because you'll see the whole story then of my life, okay? You, Fuller, you, you are amazing. That's going to be the picture. It's like, dude, you lucked, okay? And I did, man. I totally. Okay, it's mercy. Pure mercy. He sustains us. Jude one twenty four. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling. Do you realize that? He will keep you from stumbling. Not that you won't sin, but stumbling here means turning away from Christ and never turning back. Okay? If you've received the gift of faith, that will never happen to you. Why? He won't let you do that. He will cause you to always turn back to him. He will. He started it. He will sustain it. 
So the picture I want you to get here is that God saves people. Not just potentially, but he sets his affection on you before the foundations of the world when you were only a sinner. It's all you were. It's all I was. He loved you for Jesus' sake. He loved you. Predestined you to salvation. I'm going to save him and her and him and her and her and him. I'm going to save individually him, him, him. A vast multitude that no one could count from every nation, tongue, and tribe. And then in history, God calls. It's time. Heart of stone, out. Heart of flesh, in. Grant repentance. Grant faith. Draw you to Jesus. Draw you. Subdue your proud will. Draw you to Jesus. Give you living faith. And then keep you from stumbling. Keep, no, no, no. You're not going to. Okay? Keep you from stumbling. Strengthen you. Comfort you. Encourage you. Grace you. Build you. Sustain you. Hold you. All the way through to the end. Four passions and practices. Let this increase your humility before God. You contributed nothing to your salvation. That's what just blows my mind. What struck me this week, not only did I not bring anything good to the table, dealing with God here, are you going to save me? Here's some good, let me bring some good stuff to the table. I didn't even want to come to the table. I was running away from the table. He had to bring me to the table. Okay. I brought nothing to the table. Not my faith, not my repentance. Just my sin and rebellion. And he changed me. I love this quote from John Newton. John Newton, slave trader. Wrote the song Amazing Grace toward the end of his life. He says, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. That I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. Jesus saved him. Jesus gave him faith. Jesus called him. Jesus broke the power of sin off of him, paid for his sins, gave him living faith, sustained him, kept him from stumbling all the way through to glory. And let this increase your worship of God. Do you see a new dimension of God's love for you that maybe you didn't see before? That he looked upon you when there was nothing in you that recommended you to him. You say, well, then why did he love me? Because he loved you. Because of his love. Your sins are punished in Jesus. He loved you because of his love. Because he is loving. To to display the glory of his grace. It's free, absolutely free Grace that he lavished upon you. And so just see, I am a recipient of free, undeserved grace. I trust Jesus now. How could that be? Free, undeserved grace. And then third, let this increase your boldness in evangelism. Have you said recently, that person's never going to get saved? Listen, you... We're never going to get saved. Who do you think you are thinking, I got saved, they'll never get saved. Do you see the pride behind that? It's right there. It's wrong. You are no better than they were. They are. You're no better than they are. You're just as bad as they are. They're just as bad as you were. God saved you. God can save them. Your words, just like that, could be used to change their heart. Your love just like that could be used to change their heart. It's not impossible for anybody. It wasn't impossible for you. Then lastly, let this increase your confidence about the future. Here's a word for moms. It's Mother's Day. I'm going to make this into a Mother's Day sermon. Okay? Picture a zip line. You know what a zip line is? You hang on to that, okay? And uh, zip line is going from here to eternity. And it's really easy for moms and for any of us. You look ahead and you're thinking, and the zip, the zip line moves. So you're just there and it's going it's to carry you through. But you're thinking, I've got to hang on. All right? And if I let go, it's over. Okay? I've got to hang on through. I've got to be patient with my kids. I've got to be willing to cook meals and do the laundry. I've got to be patient and love my husband. You know, I've got to clean the house. I've got to forgive this person. I want to take care of people in my home group. I want to share Jesus with people in my neighborhood. I've got to hold on. That's not mostly what's going on. Mostly what's going on is that God at one point took your hands and said, here. His hands are around your hands. He said, here, you hold on. And then his hands are holding your hands onto the zip line. See that? 
You're holding on to the zipline. Yes, you are. Don't let go. Okay? His hands are holding your hands onto the zipline. Here we go. Okay? I'm holding you. I got you. Okay, I got you. Hard thing coming? Yeah, see my hands? Big, strong hands. Really strong. Big hands. Loving hands. Strong, loving hands. It's okay. So here's my word to moms. It's easy to look ahead to this afternoon, tonight, this next week, next decades, and focus mostly on what you have to do. Right? You need to follow Jesus, and you do. You need to be patient. You need to forgive. You need to love your kids, love your husband, take care of the house. You, know, you need to forgive the people that have hurt you. You need to you know, get time in the Word and prayer. You need to advance the gospel. But it's easy to focus mostly on what you need to do. My encouragement would be to focus mostly on what he promises to do. Philippians 1.6 I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, putting your hands on the zipline, will bring it to completion. Will, that means continue it to the day of Christ Jesus. He started the good work, gave you faith, gave you repentance, gave you his grace, put your hands on the zipline, held your hands there. He started it. He doesn't then let go and walk away and say, okay, let's see how this one does. He started it. He will continue it. So focus on what God promises to do. He will keep you from stumbling. He will comfort you in every trial you face. He will sustain you with his grace. He will give you patience with your kids. He will give you love for your husband. He will give you energy to do the meals and the laundry and the cooking. He will give you the the boldness to tell people in your neighborhood about Jesus. He will so satisfy your heart with his glory that you'll pass on some more material possessions so you can give money to the poor. He will make you risk, risky and, and radical to go on a short-term missions trip to Central Asia or North Africa. He will do it. So don't focus mostly on what you need to do. Focus mostly on what he promises to do. Your hands need to hold on. His hands are holding your hands on and they will not let go And if you can look down through time, real small, see it down there, you see Jesus standing before you, you will be there because he's going to hold your hands there all the way to the end and he will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. That's what he's going to say. So let's stand together. Let's pray. Amazing promise that the good work you've started, you will continue. I pray especially for every mom here right now, that they would see what you've promised to do. Focus mostly on what you've promised to do, and not mostly on what they need to do, but mostly on, what, on you. That there would be peace and confidence and strength imparted. I pray that you would do this, Jesus, for the glory of your name.